Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. This week we're reviewing orange polenta cake from Jamie Oliver and introducing a classic English pudding from Sussex. We'll also pop into my kitchen where I reveal my latest obsession, the Instant Pot. Will this small appliance revolutionize my cooking habits? Or is it just another piece of clutter on my already crowded kitchen counter? I can't wait to share my latest thoughts. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Hey, Andrea, I was looking on my personal Facebook the other day, and you and a comment that you made on one of your favorite podcasts, um, TBTL and Little Red Bandwagon. Hello, all the fans out there. Uh, You were in a fairly intense discussion about (laughs) raisinets and my (laughs) raisinet hater. Um, My dear, this is such a problem in our relationship. (laughs) Oh, no. Are you like my dearly beloved Anne, that you're actually also a Raisinette fan? Anne, here, here. I am a huge Raisinette fan. And indeed, it may be my favorite candy. So, (gasps) you know, I had to turn this into a little preheated uh, quiz type of situation here. So, Andrea, we're going to find out what our favorite candies say about us. Okay. Now, uh, there's a variety of candies out there in the world we can't really cover them all but if you had to choose maybe between say m&ms snickers raisinets lollipops caramels dark chocolate licorice what are you going for in that mix um i will go with the dark chocolate okay so here's what that means about you my friend are you ready i am so ready (laughs) Given the many reported benefits of dark chocolate, there's a good chance you're a health nut. Opting for a rich, more subtly sweet dessert suggests you're a mature realist with a good head on your shoulders. Oh yeah, I believe that. You may also be the type of person who sips on a glass of red wine instead of pounding margaritas and prefers intimate gatherings to large, raucous parties. Oh my gosh, that is all actually quite true. This is as uncanny as the horoscopes we did back in November, the baking horoscopes. Yes. So is um, there one for Raisinets then, since it's your favorite? I'm dying to hear if it's accurate. Here we go. All right, Raisinet lovers. Gosh. During the week, you're buttoned up and professional, but you love to let loose once Friday night rolls around. You're good at keeping your work life and personal drama separate, which is sometimes necessary because when you choose to party, you're all in. (laughs) Quiet at first, you quickly open up to others, especially when music and drinks are involved. Now, (laughs) hmm. I would like to point out that this is, again, very similar to my baking horoscope. Mm -hmm. Remember, I was... I was the fun bunny yes. of the Zodiac. Yeah. And apparently, does this all relate back to my love of raisinets or that I'm a Sagittarius? What What is going on here? But apparently, I love to, to cut loose with a box of raisinets. Mm-hmm. 
I actually do see some of you in that description, but I think where the two diverge is the traditional definition of cutting loose on a Friday night, I don't think is your definition of cutting loose on a Friday night. So I potentially see that maybe you uh, don the faux fur stole and pour yourself a glass of champagne and perhaps get crazy and let yourself take a bite of dessert before dinner. But that's, you know, that that's where I see you just going hog wild, Woo! my friend. I know. Well, there there you have it, folks. And uh, if you want to take that quiz, um, I will post a link in the show notes so you can find out all about your favorite candy and what it means for your personality. Yeah. What did we do before we had all these quizzes to tell us uh, what kind of people we really were? I mean, we just blindly it's- were like <laughs> reaching our hand into bags of candy and not realizing that it was a, a defining moment. Like every time I was at the movies shaking a handful of raisinets into my palm thinking, who am I and what does it mean to be Stefan? <laughs> now I know. I didn't go into this on detail on the um, Little Red Bandwagon page because I don't want to seem like such a raisin hater just because they're not for me. I mean, I don't judge anyone who, who likes them. Um, but it was so funny. One of the people mentioned, I didn't even know there was such a thing as dark chocolate covered raisinets. I thought there were only milk chocolate covered raisinets. Mm. And so that's mm-hmm. another aspect of my personality is I'm not a huge milk chocolate fan. So, mm, right. you know, if someone handed me a milk chocolate raisinette, I'd just toss it. But then I did struggle with the idea, what would I do if someone handled me a dark chocolate raisinette? Would I p- pop it in my mouth, suck off the dark chocolate, and then just kind of quietly dispose of the raisin? <laughs> When no one was looking. Well, that doesn't sound like the decision of a mature individual with a <laughs> solid head on your shoulders. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I probably would just decline. I, you know, it's so oh, come cute. on over to the Raisinette side and party with us on a Friday night. <gasps> We're so fun. Mm, you guys are just, you're having a party. You're, gonna, you're pounding your margaritas or whatever you're doing over there in dark chocolate land. So. I, I believe we're sipping our glass of red wine. Oh. No, you're the, you're the margarita pounder, my friend, with your 24 <laughs> margarita glasses. <laughs> Uh, well, you know I'm ready. You know I'm ready. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. On to more important things here. We need to talk about this lovely orange polenta cake we introduced last week. It's from Jamie Oliver. It is naturally gluten-free. It had... Um, butter, sugar, eggs, vanilla, and then ground almonds and coarse polenta, oranges, orange blossom water, a little bit of baking powder. That's what makes up your cake. And then a nice syrup on top that had that delicious cardamom, orange juice, again, the orange blossom water and the golden castor sugar. And you poke the cake all over. You pour the syrup on it. You um, can eat it warm. You can let it sit a little bit. You can serve it with some creme fraiche or some yogurt on top. Stefan, how did the orange polenta cake turn out for you? You know, I'm usually a really big Jamie Oliver fan, and I did not have great success with this cake. It seems like a very straightforward recipe, and so I'm not sure exactly why that was, but I found the recipe fairly vague in a lot of places, and it just ultimately didn't turn out into something I was crazy about. So the first thing, we've talked so many times about just a very well-written recipe. We talked a lot about this during several of our bread recipes back during bread month. 
First of all, there were some things called for that weren't specified. For example, what is vanilla essence? Is that what we're calling vanilla extract now? Is that a new word for that? Is that a totally new product? Do you, do you know what that is? I had never heard vanilla essence. So I just assumed, as I do whenever reading uh, British recipes, that it was the same thing that I have in my pantry, but just called something different. So I assumed it was va- vanilla extract. And that's what I used. So okay. there you go. Mm-hmm. Next, it calls for two oranges in the cake, but you're actually just using the zest of those oranges, so I would have liked that to have been called out. Um, Yeah, that was a little mystery. I noticed that as well. Um, I don't – here's my theory on that, Um, and this also, if you read the recipe, you'll notice several people brought this up in the comments, so we're not the only ones who noticed it. In the syrup, you do use orange juice from three to four oranges. And so my thought is that his intention is that you would use those two oranges for the zest, but also you would juice them and use some of that juice for the syrup. And in fact, that's what I did. Yeah, exactly what I did. I would have just preferred to him to say, you know, zest them here and then yes. use the juice down below. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in the instructions, so you put your dry ingredients together, um, you're creaming your butter and sugar together, uh, adding your eggs then. And he says, put the dry ingredients together and then sprinkle in the orange blossom water. Well, I just went ahead and added that with my vanilla. I've never been in a situation mm-hmm. where I had a bowl of dry ingredients and then added like a little bit of moisture. It seemed right. like it would yeah. make a mess. Anyhow cooked that up it just some of the wording in the recipe didn't didn't jibe with what I was seeing so for example pour the batter in well mine was very very thick so I really had to mine was too I really had to scrape Mm -hmm. it in there um Mm -hmm. and then you cook it that was fine it turned uh, out fine it's very very fragile and I had made another orange polenta cake about a month or so ago and I knew this firsthand because the minute I tipped it upside down it just shattered everywhere and it was just unattractive and not great so I was very very uh ginger with this it came out fine but it was Mm -hmm. very fragile and then you have this syrup with the cardamom and the orange juice more orange blossom water Andrea here again I thought it was a little bit vague I had about three cups of syrup but I only used about one cup so maybe I had at least half left over Mm. and just didn't care so much for the flavor of that. I think I was not a big fan of the orange blossom water. I would have preferred to just have the orange juice and the cardamom flavor with the sweetened sugar, not also the orange blossom. I don't know. How did you feel about that taste? Well, I had a very different experience because I didn't use orange blossom water. Okay. Yeah. So um, I had a similar experience. And I, I do I do want to go back a little bit first before I talk about that substitution. Why is this cake fragile? Is I don't understand. Like, in my mind, the texture was very much like a corn muffin. And yes. corn muffins aren't fragile. Cornbread isn't fragile. Why does this cake want to fall apart? I don't know either. Is it because it doesn't have any flour binding? I mean, I guess when you are making like a cornbread or a corn muffin, you would have the you bulk have the of flour. it being cornmeal, okay. but but some flour in there too. And this doesn't at all. Yeah, that must be it. Uh, I, I did kind of wonder about that though. But obviously, if you're making gluten-free, you're not going to toss some flour in unless you have some 
gluten-free flour. And you know, it's baked in a springform pan. And so one thought I had is, why am I not just leaving this on the bottom of the springform? I don't really mind if that is used as a cake pedestal for a day. I don't really mind if it gets some of the, the sticky syrup on it after I poke the cake and pour that over. So if I make a cake similar to this again, I think that's what I'll do because it's very nerve-wracking to have this very fragile, hot cake and be worried about it breaking apart. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Well, let me tell you kind of the things I did differently. First of all, I do not know what a 20-centimeter springform tin is. So I uh, looked that up, and that equates to an 8-inch. And I don't have an 8-inch springform pan. And I also have decided when it comes to cake, I need to make smaller because there's only three of us in my family. And I need to be able to taste it. I can't give it away, but I don't need an entire cake in my house. Yeah. So I had gone out and purchased some six-inch cake pans, and I wanted to use the six-inch cake pan. And so, um, warning, I had to do some math here. Very good. In my world, there's two kinds of math people. There are geometry people and there are algebra people. I am an algebra person. I am not a geometry person. Okay. So this was very intimidating yeah. to me. So uh, luckily, on Food 52, I found an article called How to Make Your Baking Recipe Fit Your Pan Size. It was by Alice Medrick. I've mentioned her before. She's kind of the queen of chocolate. And so first of all, I discovered the 20 centimeter equates to an 8 inch. And then I learned an 8 inch round cake pan uh, is 50 square inches. Uh, That's, of course, because you take the 8 inches and multiply it, you know, pi times the radius squared or some such. Anyway, she gives you all the numbers, so okay. don't panic. You don't have to worry about that. So the 8-inch round pan is 50 square inches. My 6-inch round pan is 29 square inches. Okay. You divide the larger number by the smaller number, which comes to 1.72, and I decided that was close enough to, to 2 to say that really uh, a 6-inch is half of an 8-inch. Okay, got it. In, on, on the one hand, doesn't make sense, but if you think about it in um, – Geometric terms, it does make sense. So I halved the recipe. I had uh, similar thoughts you did as I was going through the recipe, and I was thinking, oh, what am I doing with these oranges? What am I doing with this? I I thought some things were a little bit odd, but um, I just soldiered through. And when I got to the orange blossom water, I didn't have any. I didn't want to buy any because I thought this is the only thing I'm going to use it for. And lo and behold, in my refrigerator, I have something that I often think of as a magic elixir. I cannot remember (laughs) if I've talked about it on this show before. It comes from King Arthur Flower, our dear friends over at King Arthur Flower, and it is called Fiore di Sicilia. Have you ever heard of it? I don't think I've heard you mention this one before. It is just, in terms of fragrance, I just think it is one of the best fragrances ever. It's a very strong orange fragrance with a hint of vanilla in it. And so I contacted King Arthur Flowers Baker's Hotline, which just a shout out to those wonderful, friendly folks. I love being able to reach out at them at any time. I told them I had a recipe that needed a teaspoon of orange blossom water and that I wanted to substitute their Fiore di Sicilia and what should I do. And they said it would absolutely work as a taste substitution, but that their product is very concentrated. So I only used a quarter of a teaspoon, even though I was cutting the recipe in half. Okay. And I think that was perfect. Uh, That worked really well. I also found it odd that in the cake ingredients, he used a teaspoon, and then for the syrup, he switched over to milliliters. 
Yeah, and so thir- and so folks reading the original recipe, thir- he calls for 30 milliliters in the syrup, and that's the equivalent of two tablespoons. Okay, yeah, yeah. So in the actual cake part, I did a quarter teaspoon, and then in the syrup part, I did half a teaspoon of this Fiore di Sicilia, and I will post a link to it in our show notes. It was a little pricey. I want to say it was about $20 for this, you know, kind of four-ounce jar, but I am not kidding when I tell you a drop or two of this is all you need. So I very often put it in my pancakes at breakfast. I always put it in my scones, uh, you know, even if I'm not making an orange scone, I'll I'll pop some into my scones uh, if it's lemon or, you know, not a savory, but anything that's kind of sweet, I love it in there. I'll put it in my Dutch babies. I just love this stuff. And so um, I did have some trouble getting the cake out of my pan. My six-inch pan is not a springform pan. It's just a regular uh, pan. So I had greased it really well. I had lined it with parchment paper. I had greased it again. When it popped out of the pan, it came out of the pan, but it did stick a little bit to the parchment. So okay. I think that's where kind of that fragility comes into play. I'm not not really sure. Um, but the smell of this was divine. I served it with some whipped heavy cream on top and just a tiny little bit of orange zest on top of that. My husband loved it. My daughter loved it. I loved it. It's very dense. It's heavy. It's sweet. Um, I think my best definition would be like it's just a really sweet, flavorful corn muffin. Yeah, and I would be interested to try that delicious essence that you're talking about because the orange blossom water to me tasted very artificial. And mm. in a cake that has so much delicious flavor already from the orange, fresh orange juice and the orange zest, it's I'm questioning why. Uh, I also really yeah. like the flavor of the cardamom in the syrup. But that is a lot. Two tablespoons of the orange blossom water, which is a concentrated flavor, was a bit overpowering in mm-hmm. in that application as well. So I did not use the whole syrup as I as I said. Uh, I don't like it when those kind of cakes get soggy. So I was very right. you know sparing with the syrup. Mm-hmm. But then I had a bunch left over, which was a little irritating to me too. Because what am I gonna do with do with that syrup now? I didn't have any syrup left over. I mean, other than a tiny little bit sticking in the pan, which I just sort of scraped out with a spoon and took care of myself, if right. you know what I mean. I do. And mm-hmm. uh, the other thing, when I was making the syrup, I also strained it because you have the cardamom pods, and I don't think you want to bite into those. And I just put it through a through a sieve at the end, and that worked fine. I served mine with creme fraiche, and that was delicious. Mm. I think mm-hmm. you're right. I agree with you that it is a very dense and very sweet cake, and I thought the creme fraiche did a wonderful job of kind of cutting that. I think if you can't find creme fraiche readily, even just a good like Greek yogurt would be very good. Something with a little bit of a tang I think would work well. Um, But it was not popular at my house. Um, It just kind of sat there and was was sad on the counter for a while. So this just wasn't Mm. wasn't one that did it Mm -hmm. for us. And um, yeah, just just having to move on from from that one here. Yeah, so, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, it worked in our house. We ate half of the six inch the first night. So it was kind of two, you know, we had three sort of little mini pieces, I guess, is the best way to think of it. And then the next day, um, it had gotten very sticky. I think that syrup is already sticky. And I, I did put it in the fridge overnight. It had gotten almost heavier and stickier. And so I took a bite of it. I still thought the flavor was fabulous. But the texture... 
eating it cold, and you you know I'm already not a huge cold cake lover. <laughs> it just, yeah, it just didn't work for me. It okay. kind of felt almost gritty between my teeth. It was kind of this gritty and sweet combination that didn't really work for me. So we loved it hot out of the oven, or I shouldn't say hot, but it was still warm okay. um, with the heavy whipping cream on top. I think if I were going to make this again, I would definitely just make sure that's how I'm going to serve it. And I do like having gluten-free options that you don't necessarily require gluten-free flour because I don't always have that on hand. So I thought it worked out pretty well um, for what it was. And again, I love cakes that don't require icing or decoration or totally. that kind of thing. I yes, just it thought was it was very, like, it was very pretty. Yeah, it had very kind pretty of a little cake. orange appearance, and with that mm-hmm. good white creme fraiche or cream on top, a very nice looking cake too. So yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, moving on to another British recipe. This week's Bake Along, Andrea, we're really excited about. It is called a Sussex Pond Pudding, and the recipe we're making is from The Guardian newspaper and Felicity Cloak. She had a great article several months ago in which I saw this picture in the paper, and this is a steamed pudding with an entire lemon in the middle. And we had been talking about one of your favorite pies in February, Andrea, which is a shaker lemon pie, which uses the entire fruit. And that's what made me think of this again. So a Sussex pond pudding. Here in England, uh, steamed puddings are very traditional and very popular. And this is a traditional steamed pudding from the southern part of the country of Sussex. It dates from 1673, Andrea, so I think it may be the most historical recipe <laughs> we've tackled. I, I think so. <laughs> I, it's, it's tried and true and tested for sure. It first appeared in cookbook form in a cookbook called The Queen-Like Closet by Hannah Woolley. And it is called a pond pudding because when you steam it, it creates a thick sauce And when you cut into it, the sauce runs out and pools around the plate like a pond. That's very Mm -hmm. poetic and beautiful. Yes. So interestingly enough, although this has been around since 1673, it wasn't until almost 300 years later in 1974 that a lemon was added to the middle. And ostensibly, this was done in kind of a health craze to cut the richness of this pudding, which is more like a pie crust if you think of it. It is a pie crust lined bowl with sugar and butter inside. So someone mm-hmm. thought, let's add a lemon for some tang and for, um, you know, to cut that fat a little bit. Mm-hmm. You, you then steam it. And I r- ran across a hilarious quote I had to share with you um, when I was researching some of this history from a website called cooksinfo.com. Quote, most steamed puddings are delicious, can be assembled in under half an hour, and require only two hours steaming, during which you can do your nails and flip through Cosmo. So, hey, that's what you can do <laughs> while well, you're waiting. You. Mm. <laughs> Definitely going to do that. I'll have to go out and get a Cosmo, but yeah. um, otherwise, yeah. Well, otherwise, sounds good. While you're out getting your, your lemons. Uh, I have not made a steamed pudding myself. You can buy them kind of ready to go and steam here, but I've never made one homemade. This is such an old-fashioned dessert. I am so intrigued with putting an entire lemon in the middle of it. Andrea, what are your thoughts as we get into this? Well, I am very excited. Obviously, I'd ne- I've never made a steamed pudding because I'd never even heard of a steamed pudding. In fact, uh, I will remind our listeners from the U.S., again, pudding in Britain 
simply means dessert. It doesn't mean pudding the way I think of pudding kind of in jello terms. So right. when we were originally planning this month, I even said to Stefan, oh, I'm not sure we should do that uh, coconut tapioca pudding and then follow it up with a steam pudding. We can't right. have two puddings in one month. <laughs> you know, that's not pudding month. And she was like, no, no, no. You you reminded me that pudding, pudding means something different. That's so um, I did a little of my own research. And um, I, of course, used video and went and found Paul Hollywood has about a 13-minute video. It's through the BBC, and he went out to this beautiful place in Sussex and met with an archaeologist, and they reviewed the whole history of the Sussex pond pudding. And so I really enjoyed watching that. He made one. Now, I know you said the recipe came from the 1600s. They actually started with a recipe from the 11th century. Oh, my so, goodness. Yes, very medieval. Before there were pudding basins or yeah. pudding tins, you would just place the pastry in a muslin yes. or a cheesecloth. Cheese cloth. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then put the butter and the sugar, and, you know, they were using the lemon as well, and then tie it all up together and then drop it into the water. And, you know, I just couldn't understand and say, why are we steaming this? I just – I didn't get that. And and the archaeologist said, remember, there were not ovens. We yeah. didn't have ovens. So yeah. we were boiling things for four hours to create this oven-like texture. So I found that video really interesting. I will include a link to it in our show notes, and I highly recommend that if anyone likes history, it's really fun. They make an 11th century version. They make a 18th century version. They make a version from the 1950s, and then Paul tosses all of those aside because none of them pooled and puddled like a pond, which is what you want from the Sussex Pond Pudding, and he created his own version. So it's really fun to watch, and I do think the version that we're going to be making here from Felicity looks closest to me like it's going to be like the one Paul made as well. So I can't wait to try it. I'm very excited. Oh, thank you for that resource. And you know, Paul Hollywood is kind of on a mission to save and catalog historical recipes in this country and so that's that's great I I fully support that so we're doing our little part as well and Felicity's article is also really full of history and she kind of talks about all of these other ways of doing and then creates her own recipe at the end so I feel like she's taking that history into account as well it also has lots of great pictures if you look at it online and links for more information about how do I tie up my parchment paper or why do Mm -hmm. I have to make a a handle for the top. The big difference I would say is that we are not doing this on the stovetop. This is an oven oven steam. So you you make a, a steamer basket into a Dutch oven and stick that in the oven for four hours. So it's a it's it's a lot of time, but it's it's passive time. Remember, we'll have a link to these recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Pinterest and Facebook pages. Well, Andrea, uh, back in episode 18, we were talking about slow cookers because it was puddings and custards month, and we were making uh, a rice pudding in our slow cooker. And at the time, you mentioned learning of an appliance called an instant pot. And I had seen it on, I think, our uh, Facebook preheated community. I had seen it on my personal Facebook. It seemed like every time I was on Pinterest, I was seeing an instant pot. And you said, we need to put a pin on that and come back to it. So here we are one year later, and (laughs) it's time for us to step into the gadget garage and talk about the instant pot. So give us an update. 
I will. Well, one of the first things I need to do in my update is correct my pronunciation of the appliance back in episode 18. That shows you how little I knew. At that point, I was calling it an Instapot. Oh, I me it too. Was, That's okay. Yeah, in- I thought it was one word. It's not. It's two separate words, Instant Pot. Got it. It comes out of Canada, and I basically think it's best if you think of it as a modern-day pressure cooker. Okay. And I resisted this appliance for numerous reasons. Um, one is just whenever a fad comes out, I think to myself, eh, yeah, it's just going to be like everything else. And, you know, after a year or two, it's going to be taking up space on your counter, and you're never going to be using it. My uh, sister-in-law had purchased one and actually gave it away after using it a few times. Okay. She didn't love it, and she's an excellent cook, so that kind of made me raise my eyebrows. And I think my final reason I, I wasn't too excited about it is a lot of people love it because you can do dried beans without the overnight soak and, you mm-hmm. know, the several hours of cooking time. And we just actually eat very few beans in my household. Okay. My husband doesn't love them. And so it's just not something I'm cooking on the regular. So I had kind of avoided the whole instant pot phenomenon. And then, oh, I think back in November or so, we knew we would be spending Christmas at home. A lot of times we travel during the holidays, but we were staying home this year. And for some reason, I got it in my head that this would be a good time to give each other the Instant Pot for our holiday present, first thing. So we always like to give each other something that's like a household item that we're going to use. Okay. And then that I would actually have the time to figure out how to use it. Because I had determined from what I had seen and read that it is complex. It's not something you just pop onto your counter, press a button, and start using from day one. Okay. And so we did get it. It actually arrived at our house early December, but I restrained myself. We didn't open it until Christmas Day. (laughs) The first thing we made with it was chicken stock. Now, my husband loves to make chicken stock, and I could do a whole episode on making your own bone broth and Mm -hmm. your own stocks. I will spare our listeners uh, that particular joy of download of information and just tell you that in two hours, the Instant Pot made a better broth than my husband has ever made in two days, so much so that he was was angry. He was pleased yet angry. Because all that time lost. All that time lost and all that feeling of like, oh, you have to tend this so carefully and skim it and do this and do that. And nope, you just use the Instant Pot. So I decided shortly after that, you know, even if we only ever used it for a bone broth and stock, yeah. it was worth it. Yeah, I right. think it cost around $80, $90. Okay. So I thought, you know, we, we use a lot of stock in our house because I'm always making soups and I use them in almost all of my soups. So it was worth it just based on that. We also eat a lot of Asian, we eat a lot of Korean, we eat a lot of Thai, Vietnamese, and a ton of Indian curries is sort of our regular weeknight meals. And this is where the Instant Pot really excels in my mind. So again, I'm not going to go into the details of it because this is a baking podcast. (laughs) But the one thing I had not done in it yet was bake. And a big part of the reason I hadn't done that is I had seen an article where someone was writing about the Instant Pot, and they were talking about something they had done in it. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. And they were really disappointed with the results. And the author of the article made a comment that I thought was so funny. And he said, don't forget that other magical cooking appliance in your kitchen. It's called your oven. (laughs) And so I just sort of took that as a 
you know, he's reminding us that the Instant Pot is not meant to do everything. It should not be all things for all people. And so I just brushed away, okay, I'm not going to do desserts in it. I did try and make yogurt in it. That is something that a lot of people like to do. I've only tried it once. I had success from a flavor perspective, but I I personally didn't like the texture. So I need to work on that to figure out how to make it thicker and more like the Greek yogurt yeah. that I like instead of that thin, runny yogurt. At a certain point, I thought to myself, okay, I now feel like I've really mastered this device. I know how to use it. I know how to press all the buttons. I understand what it does. I think I will try a dessert. So I did a little bit of research and I decided that what the Instant Pot is best for is items that need a water bath. And that's because it is just naturally a steam cooker, a water bath environment. Okay. And you're not having to constantly open the lid like you would if you had a water bath in the oven and topping off the level and, you know, making sure that it's it's not running dry. And it's that set it and forget it mentality. Okay. So I picked three recipes. I picked a creme brulee. I picked a lemon cheesecake. And I picked a chocolate lava cake. And to give you an idea of how easy and fast it is to make desserts in the Instant Pot. I made all three of those desserts in one day between the time my daughter got home from school, which is about 2.30, and the time we started dinner that night around 6 p.m. You know, you sent me pictures on a text, and I remember thinking like, Andrea, you've really gone to town today. But of course, I was thinking you had done it over the course of the entire day. Three right. hours? Like, roughly? Yeah, it's it's pretty quick. And I think a big, obviously a big part of it is the method, right? So you're, you know, you're using this super pressurized environment to do the steam or the heat. So the times are shortened. But another big part of it is many of the recipes written for the Instant Pot, and this is another reason I love doing desserts in it, are written for individual portions. Okay. Because the nature of the pot, I got the six-quart one, which is not the smallest, but not the biggest. It's kind of right in the middle. For example, a seven-inch cheesecake pan fits perfectly inside of the six-quart Instant Pot. Okay. And so many of the recipes are for smaller sizes. They're for ramekins. They're, you know, so creme brulees. The creme brulee recipe that I made was literally a single-serving creme brulee recipe. Now, in the big picture, is it good that I now have Mm. an easy way to make myself a (laughs) single-serving of creme brulee? Perhaps not. So is it a round appliance, Andrea? I'm trying to picture. It is. Yes, it's round. And so you have said desserts that need a water bath, cheesecakes, these type of things. What would you not then do in the Instant Pot? I saw the other day someone posted bread in the Instant Pot, and I thought to myself, eh, I don't think I'm going to do that. I mean, I'll I'll put an asterisk next to that statement. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll change my mind. But I certainly wouldn't, for example, think of like a cookie, you know. I mean, okay. uh, you know, something that needs to be crispy, something that needs to be baked, no. Okay. But something that needs to be steamed or something that needs to be cooked low and slow, that's the sort of thing. I mean, rice puddings, any type of puddings and custards. You know, again, my creme Kimberley turned out absolutely fabulous. I thought it was lovely. My cheesecake was okay. And this is where the tricky part is because you really can't, or at least I can't just take my regular recipes and switch them to Instant Pot. Sure. I, I, I don't yet know enough about the appliance to be able to do that. So I am relying on written and published recipes from other people. And many of these people are people I have not cooked from before. So I don't know if it's the recipe that I was using that I didn't love. And if I had that recipe from that same person in the oven, I might not love it as much as the 
Instant Pot. I'm not sure. really sure. Right, right. I do, I do have on request the one from the New York Times food author, Melissa Clark. She has a lot of great Instant Pot recipes, and I've used many of her entrees with great success. The one thing I had that was a little bit of a fail in my mind was the chocolate lava cake. And you know I make those chocolate molten cakes in my oven right. quite a bit. So I right. know I like them. I know how I like them to turn out. Again, the flavor on the one that I made in the Instant Pot was great, but... You put it in a custard cup and you flip it upside down and and then it has the outer shell and of course you use your spoon to break it open and then that chocolate molten runs out. In my particular case, the one that I made, I thought the chocolate was way too runny. It was okay. almost like a chocolate soup. Now, okay. this did not deter my daughter from eating it at all. <laughs> I mean, she just used a spoon and thought it was fine. But in terms of texture, I to me, a chocolate lava cake still needs to hold that cake shape. It shouldn't completely run out onto the plate. So I, I have right. a little bit of work to do. But right. So as I hear you talking about low and slow, the things that you're cooking, do you think that this will replace your slow cooker? You know, this is really... This is a this is a challenge because from a clutter perspective, I hate that I have both a slow cooker and an instant pot. Okay. But but for example, tomorrow I need to bring a soup to my daughter's school for their teacher appreciation and I'm bringing a soup that I do in the slow cooker. I don't want to bring my instant pot to the school. I mean, I guess I could, but I just feel like it's trickier. It's got all these buttons. People might be kind of intimidated. They might not okay. know how to take the lid off. It has it has to lower pressure before you remove the lid. I would right. be worried about someone not knowing that and hurting themselves or, you know, who knows what. So I think for now, I will hang on to my slow cooker, but definitely I have used it much, much less since I got my Instant Pot. Well, I'm so happy to hear this Gadget Garage because they've intrigued me for so long. Like you, I regularly make chicken stock or beef stock for soups, and then I freeze that. And it takes me, you know, a good amount of time. It's not necessarily any hard work that I'm doing, but it's I have to be in the kitchen, keeping an eye on it. You know, it's it's definitely more than two hours. I mean, that's incredible. Now, is yeah. there a is there a brand name people should look for, Andrea, or is it is the brand name Instant Pot? Right, the one I'm talking about, the brand name is Instant Pot, and it's from Canada. There are, of course, all sorts of different varieties. I was in Bed Bath and Beyond the other day, and I was looking to buy a, a trivet for my Instant Pot, and she was showing me the version that they carry. It looks very similar, but you know, it, it was different. And I, I apologize, I don't remember the brand name, but there are different brands out there. I think the Instant Pot is the one that's kind of grabbed people's attention. Perhaps it was the first. Got it. Got it. Well, I'm very interested to see what you might be saying next month or next week when we review the Sussex Pond Pudding. I have a little theory. <laughs> yes, I think you might be barking up the right tree there. So <laughs> listeners, stay tuned and um, you might get another update from me on another delicious dessert made in the Instant Pot. Yeah, and listeners, if you have desserts or other things that you love to make in your Instant Pot, we would love to know on our Facebook community. Let us know. Yes, definitely. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get this episode onto the cooling rack. Next week, it's our special April bonus episode and we'll be reviewing our Sussex Pond Pudding as well as awarding our coveted blue ribbon to the citrus desserts we whipped up this month. Remember, you can find us in our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you like our show, please tell a friend and consider ranking and reviewing us on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download our podcast. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.